Welcome back to another episode of Why Wasn't It Better? I am your host, Patrick Darms. And I'm your co-host, Anton Paras. And it's just us today. No guests. It's a classic Pat and Anton episode. Yep, just riding. I mean, not solo, but whatever the term, pilot, co-pilot, Riding like duo. That. Yeah, that's it. Riding duo. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I know our uh, our listeners have been getting used to hearing, you know, a pretty, pretty good lineup of guests. And we've got more guests coming. We're probably starting to record these out of order. So this may be the episode that gets released after Alien 3. It may be the episode that gets released after Hannibal. We're largely trying to record these in order, but with the uh, the scheduling of the guests, sometimes it gets a little complicated. But, you know, we try. Yeah, try to use some little tidbits of any commentary you hear in the episode to think of the time frame that this episode could have been recorded i don't know if we're going to give any little nuggets or hints here but is there any reason to think we, about. is there any reason we can't say i mean day? no i mean i think it's just kind of fun if we do have any listeners that are trying to like weave a web of when we recorded every episode i was thinking about that um last season when we were talking about or maybe it was earlier this season when we were we were giving um, some brief thoughts on like the NBA playoffs and stuff, and then I belatedly realized that some of the recordings might come out weeks later, and it's like thus making the discussion about the Knicks playoff series completely irrelevant. But whatever. So remember, like for, you you guaranteed that the Warriors would repeat. I will not let you forget that one. That one is fine. I'll I live with that because that just means I'm a very yeah. dedicated fan. I'll, I'll I can live with that. I'm not faulting not- you. Yeah, it's I not like I like li- their chances too. They had a good shot. It's not like I'm a Lions fan saying that my team's going to make the playoffs. Is is that a it's, diff- bold? it's difficult? <laughs> okay, they're usually bad. Right? I mean, they've been bad. Oh, I, I know they've been bad. They've been bad. But the point is, we are generally trying to record these in order uh, to the best of our abilities. But we apologize if this is not necessarily the episode that you were looking forward to hearing next. I'm sure they were interested in knowing as well. I mean, today lined up with the birthday of celebrity Leah Michelle and uh, pop icon Michael Jackson. I know one of the two. I, I know who Michael Jackson was. Fairly Leah Michelle, confident about that. Leah Michelle was on uh, Glee. <laughs> You're right. I should have known that. Should have should have known that. Yeah, Your man. Big, damn. Big sorry, I didn't. Sorry, I missed that one, Anton. <laughs> also, um, looking at this list, it's kind of insane to see what constitutes celebrity nowadays. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm just. I was. That's not a celebrity. That doesn't count. These are a bunch of YouTube stars. I would. That's. Uh, anyway, before the listeners start feeling like we're we're more dated and older than what uh, we want them to just think, shut this off. <laughs> yeah, let's let's go ahead and start talking about our yeah. usual. Uh, usual spin on the on the podcast yeah so um again thanks for all the support that we've been getting on our youtube channel it's really growing nicely and as of this moment we are fastly approaching 100 subscribers which is really great yeah we were pretty late in the game on that you know we didn't set up the youtube channel until well after we launched the podcast and it's really done well the the shorts are getting a lot of attention we're starting to get some some really thoughtful uh, non-trolling comments, which we always appreciate. It, it, it really seems like people mostly like the content, and even when they disagree, which is sometimes happening, uh, we're still getting, uh, I would say, like well-thought-out rebuttals, and it's great. Yeah, we, we welcome it wherever you are engaging with us, whether on YouTube, our Instagram, 
Uh, thank you to, to all our subscribers on Spotify. I know we have listeners yeah. all over. We just, we appreciate you. We're thankful for you for joining us on this podcast journey. And we really enjoy talking about movies and we're excited that there are those of you that also enjoy it too. For sure. Let's talk about this week's film, which is the Pelican Brief. It is about to be the 30th anniversary of this film coming up in December. And it's definitely a film that uh, I think it's safe to say no one else is celebrating the 30th anniversary. I'd, I would be interested in seeing if they do a, a Grisham anniversary collection. And this is a film that's in that set. But I don't know if there's a huge clamoring to celebrate Pel- the Pelican Brief. I don't think there is, based on what I've been reading about this film. It, it's not loved, which is interesting. Well, we'll, we'll get more into it, yeah. won't we? Where, where are you on John Grisham? Fan. I think uh, a lot of the, I'd say, earlier works is actually what I grew up reading, <laughs> funny enough, in like middle school, high school. I, I started reading uh, John Grisham, a lot of Stephen King. Um, when I was younger, it's Same. fun to see the films on, on the silver screen. Much like Stephen King, he has written far more books than you realize. Just consistently puts out material. And you mentioned how a lot of his earlier works are the are the stuff that you've read. Same thing for me. Maybe same thing with Stephen King. Stephen King has written so many, and when I yeah. think of Stephen King, all that iconic imagery, mm-hmm. almost all of it is from his earlier works. But that's yeah. not to say I don't like his newer stuff, too. I, I just haven't read as much of it. Same thing with and, Grisham. And funny thing, you know, Pelican Brief came out in 93. In the 90s in general, we had a ton of film adaptations of novels. And, of course, a lot of John Grisham, a lot of Stephen King. So, makes sense. Maybe we'll have a... I, I forget if we have a Stephen King film on the list but i think we totally should there's a couple yeah yeah there's a couple yeah just uh give a shout i'm gonna give a shout out now we're probably not gonna cover the langoliers it's horrible but i I didn't even know that was a movie yeah it's a it's a bad one there Um, also with stephen king there's a lot more movie adaptations of his stuff than you'd think oh yeah and like if a lot of them are bad well a lot of them end up just Maybe they they end up in theaters for, for back then for like a hot second. And then now they live on an eternity running as reruns on the sci-fi channel. Yeah, a lot of them flew under the radar, too. I'm going to take your word about the sci-fi channel. I have no idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, let's get into this. The Pelican Brief. A young law student writes a legal brief about the assassination of two Supreme Court justices, causing her to be targeted by the killers. She realizes just how accurate her accusations have been when her lover and mentor is murdered, forced to go on the run in New Orleans. She is aided by a journalist who helps her unravel a conspiracy involving senior government figures. The Pelican Brief was released on December 17, 1993 by Warner Brothers. It was directed by Alan J. Pakula. The screenplay was written by Alan J. Pakula, and it is, of course, based on the novel by John Grisham. The film stars Julia Roberts, Denzel Washington, Sam Shepard, John Hurd, Tony Goldwyn, James B. Sicking, Robert Culp, and John Lithgow. A budget of $45 million, that is the equivalent of $95 million today, adjusted for inflation, and a box office revenue of 
$195 million. That is $412 million in today's money. Not bad. Not bad. Not too bad. Why was this movie chosen? So Anton, we kind of like both chose this in a way. There was no really one of us in particular that picked it, but we had it much further down our list. And we're sorry, we decided to replace Fantastic Voyage with this film for this season of Why Wasn't It Better? Just basically because the 30th anniversary of this was, was coming up. This was released during a time when people were really excited for Grisham books, probably a lot more so than they were today. He used oh, to yeah. write stuff that sold millions of copies when they came out. And I, I remember like Harry Potter breaking some of his records, but like that's how popular his stuff was, you know, in the right. 90s. Always on bestseller lists. Oh, yeah. Very, very uh, iconic name in the 90s. Yeah. And this was only the second adaptation of one of his films. And of course, the first one was The Firm, which came out earlier in 1993. I want to talk about The Firm a little bit because The Firm is the far more successful of the two. That has a real legacy. And I think of that movie as a classic. And I I would think most people do as well. It it seems to age really nicely. It was a especially exciting for me just to see like a young Tom Cruise in the film. Yeah. Um, And also just at the same time, you know, we talked about this earlier novelization adapt or yeah. Novelization adaptations. Very, very popular. And I mean, it makes sense, right? You have a very strong source material. Yeah. So especially when you consider John Grisham books, Pat, would you say you're a fan? For sure. Uh, I, I haven't read much of his newer stuff, but pretty much all of the stuff that he published in the 90s, I've read almost all of them. And I think The Firm is my favorite, and my and The Firm is certainly my favorite of the movie adaptations. It's a movie I actually rewatch fairly regularly. Every mm-hmm. couple of years, I, I go back to it, and every time I see it, I like it more. That's always been like an A-plus movie for me. I, I really enjoy it. Oh yeah, it's a it's a great one. Great, uh, movie. definitely no doubt about it. I mean, and just to say again, firm, the firm, great film. I think that that one needs a definitely needs more of a a revisit. Yeah, I almost wish we could cover it in the podcast, but of course, it doesn't fit the criteria because everybody really liked it. Not really, but I guess that's just a good shout out for our listeners. Go check out the firm. Yeah, the Pelican Brief, not as much, right? Yeah, we, we mentioned I mean, the box office. Yeah. It made a pretty good amount of money, and it seems to be fondly remembered by a lot of folks who saw it. It, it certainly enjoyed a very successful cable TV run. That's where I saw it. I saw yes. huge chunks of this movie on TNT or USA so many times, probably in the early 2000s. Same. And and to be fair, there was a lot going for the film at the time that it made sense that it would be very popular. I mean, who were the two big leads of the film, Pat? Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington pretty early in their careers, which is a rarity in Hollywood. And you could argue both of, well, Denzel had won his Oscar already. Julia Roberts hadn't won hers yet. This was probably even before they peaked. Oh, absolutely. This was still like, in my opinion, this was still up and coming Denzel and Julia Roberts. I really do think that this was not even them hitting their complete stride yet. Like they were still very up and coming. Julia Roberts and Denzel in the early 90s had 
both respectfully some films that are just iconic in film history. She's coming off of Pretty Woman, which was a huge hit for her. She got an Oscar nomination for that. And then she's in this movie. She was in another movie that's pretty much forgotten now. It's called Sleeping with the Enemy. It's a pretty well-known thriller Mm -hmm. for the time, but I would imagine if you're under a certain age, you probably haven't heard of it. And then, of course, this is where her career trajectory goes after the Pelican Brief. She's in Something to Talk About, My Best Friend's Wedding, Conspiracy Theory, Stepmom, Notting Hill, Runaway Bride, and then in 2000, she wins her Oscar for Erin Brockovich. Absolutely the peak of her career. Denzel, interesting point in his career. We mentioned that he already won his Oscar, his first Oscar for Glory. He should have won his second one for Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. And then this is his next film, which he, he's in this movie the same year that he's in Philadelphia with Tom Hanks. And then over the next few, few years, he goes on a pretty impressive run. Crimson Tide, Virtuosity, Devil in a Blue Dress, Courage Under Fire, The Preacher's Wife, Fallen, He Got Game, The Siege, The Bone Collector, The Hurricane. And this takes him up to the turn of the millennium where he actually wins his second Oscar in 2001 for Training Day. Training Pretty Day. impressive run. Pretty good run. Pretty impressive. And then just wanted to give a shout out to Julia Roberts. She really hasn't been doing much like right now, right? As of 2023. But growing up, it was definitely exciting to see like when she was like the talk of the town, like one of the Hollywood like A-list celebrities. And she just put out great films. And then also another name from that same time period that I think uh, maybe has fallen off is uh, Richard Gere, who, of course, starred with Julie Roberts and Runaway Bride. And, of course, the very iconic Pretty Woman. Good point. Richard Gere. Good actor. I like yeah, a lot good of his actor. stuff. Shouts out Richard Gere. Yeah. He's had a pretty up and down career, but when he's good, he's good. He always oh, yeah. com- he always kind of reminded me of Travolta in a way where like he was in a lot of crap, but when he was good, mm-hmm. he was good. I think I'm gonna have to go check out and see what Richard Gere's been up to the the past few years. He's still working. I, I see him every now and again in like Netflix stuff. Yeah. Oh. But there's also um, by sheer coincidence, uh, Denzel has the Equalizer three, which is in theaters right now. So kind of yes, cool that been... we're covering this movie now. Oh yeah, and I mean it, it's interesting to see too, even though. I mean, Julia Roberts, we don't really see in too much right now. Denzel has still definitely been able to stay relevant doing like the Equalizer films, a very different kind of role in a very, and right. at this stage in his career. Right. But um, still, two very great actors. For sure. Uh, now, the guy that directed this and wrote the screenplay, Alan J. Pakula, or Pakula, and I apologize to his memory. I'm not quite sure how to He's, pronounce his name. But he's iconic. He Let's is just iconic. Get that out there. <laughs> yeah, I I oh I recognize the name from all the president's men, right? Which he directed, which mm-hmm. is probably one of the twenty five best movies I've ever seen. Yep, fair, safe, safe it, to say. I think like you see a a very interesting theme around like that film, and then Pelican Brief around like ability to direct like large conspiracies. <laughs> Yeah, you, there's some some pretty big similarities between the two for sure. And then he he's done some other pretty well-known stuff. Uh, he directed the movie Sophie's Choice with Meryl Streep, as well as one of my favorite courtroom dramas of all time, Presumed Innocent with Harrison Ford. If you have not seen Presumed Innocent, fantastic movie. One of my favorite movies from that era that came out in 1990. I haven't seen it. I'm going to have to check it out. 
Great movie. Great book, too. You know, I mentioned it. I saw the Pelican Brief. I at least saw big chunks of it on cable so often. But I hadn't, revisiting it for this podcast, it had been probably almost 20 years since I had seen it, like, all the way through. And I caught it when it was still on uh, HBO Max. I don't think it's on any streaming services currently. But at one point it was on, sorry, not HBO Max, Max. That's my On Max. Yeah. Yeah. Can't keep track of that stuff. I always assumed it was a well-received movie because my parents liked it. I probably saw it with them to start off. And then, I don't know, it, all, it was always one of those movies you're like, well, it's on TNT a lot. People must like it. But doing the research, I was surprised to find out it did not get stellar reviews. I think it's what's interesting is it can still, I, I see it as along the same lines of studios looking at how do you take a formula and then come out with like a similar like output so basically taking the the structure of what they did with the firm and then do the same thing with this film and it ended up having much more it was a warm reception not lukewarm but also yeah. wasn't the most perfect film 54 percent on rotten tomatoes which is like fine but it's which, not nothing great yeah i i would have put it a little bit higher critically but anyway there was you know, we, we touched on it before there were a lot of novel, there was a lot of novel adaptations in the nineties. We talked about Stephen King, you know, we got John Grisham, Crichton man, of course. Crichton was the king back then. Oh yeah. We were talking about that with Eric on the lost world episode, how like pretty Mm -hmm. much every single Crichton book that got turned into a movie in the nineties, you could probably cover this podcast and we are going to, Oh, I can't wait to talk about Congo sphere. Uh, Just a whole bunch of crap. Just a whole bunch of crap. And, and then right now we're seeing a bit of a revival with the, with the excitement around Agatha Christie novels. Yes. So there is definitely, yeah, so there's definitely a fun little parallel going around now with uh, what was it, Death, Death on the Nile, the uh, yeah. a, a year or two ago, um, mm-hmm. Murder on the Orient Express, Murder Kenneth, on the Ken, Orient our Express, our boy Kenneth Bernal. Yes, and then who? What, what's the film this fall? It was I can't think of it, but yeah, it's something Venice. Yeah, and, and again, it, oh yeah, it, a it haunting makes sense. in Venice or whatever, a haunting in Venice. So it yeah. it, it makes sense, right? Like. Strong, strong novels already basically just give you the script that you need to just make sure you adapt well, attach some good names. Um, but, you know, going back to, to Grisham, there was a lot of films in the decade. You want like, do we have like a do we have a, a, a handy dandy list somewhere of those films? We do, because I thought that everything that he wrote got turned into a movie, kind of like Michael Crichton. Right. But not as much as you'd think. So we mentioned Pelican Brief was the second adaptation of one of his books. The Firm was number one. Mm -hmm. But over the next several years, we would get The Client, Time to Kill. That was my favorite. The Chamber. Never seen it. Mm -hmm. The Rainmaker with Matt Damon. Was that the one with De Niro? I don't think so. I I think I saw it, but I have no memory of it. The Gingerbread Mm -hmm. Man. No idea what that is. Mm-hmm. A Painted House, which I didn't see. It was made for TV, but I liked that book. Runaway Jury was one of Gene Hackman's last films. And then Christmas with the Cranks. And this ends that was in 2003. A, you can really see the themes with the books. And then the last one, you're like, that one doesn't fit the rest. Right. 
10 Grisham adaptations in a 10-year span. So that's a good amount. But fascinating to discover, there has not been a Grisham adaptation in 20 years. You would just think that based on the number of bestsellers he's written, there'd be more. I think the answer for this is pretty simple. After A Time to Kill in 1996, none of them did well at the box office. So for whatever reason, he continued to write bestsellers, but audiences just didn't seem to be interested in the movie adaptations. Kind of curious. Very curious. And maybe we'll we'll start to see a few themes in this particular film that maybe audiences also felt. Um, yeah, I, and, and, and I'll say funny this. you say that, yeah. so, go ahead. I was gonna say, I'll say this. I think studios and Hollywood in general, sometimes take learnings from a success, take the wrong learnings from a successful film. For example, just a very real world, a really relevant one to today is Hasbro's uh, Barbie film is doing huge, like is, is so successful, right? It's made over a billion dollars in the box office. And we're hearing reports of Hasbro already like doubling down on this venture instead of just doing the Barbie film. Now they're lining up films like Plato and all of their other Hasbro line of toys. So if anything, that tells me that maybe they didn't get why Barbie was so successful or what they should be investing in. I still so, need to see it. Yeah. Okay. Pat, you got to go see it. Well, I really want to. I really want go to go after that need, money pile. You need to see Oppenheimer. That's okay. Deal. Yeah, we'll deal. trade. You mentioned how Christmas with the cranks doesn't fit into the rest of Grisham's stuff, right? Because right. he, he's just famous for these, these legal thrillers. Mm-hmm. This is often classified as a legal thriller, but it isn't really, but it's, it's not really. No, there's no. not a single courtroom scene. There's, there's some, there's some law student stuff in it, but this is just weird. a straight political thriller. <laughs> there is not a single yeah. courtroom scene in this film. Yeah, this this makes more sense as like true like conspiracy theory. Yeah. Like genre in my opinion. Definitely. It 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 actually looking at the, all the books he's written, this is more different than I gave him credit for initially. Cuz you know, one of the criticisms of Grisham stuff is like, well, he just writes all the same kind of stuff, all the stuff in the courtroom, drama, yada yada yada, but like this is pretty different for him. And this was only the third book that he wrote. So the first one was The Time to Kill. The second one was a, was The Firm. And then this came out in 1992, which brings us into the production history of this. So before he even published this, director Alan Pacula was interested in this. Our old friends at Coralco Pictures purchased the film rights for $1 million before Grisham was even finished writing it. Talk about hype. No kidding. But as we covered in the Terminator 3 episode, Coralco began to experience financial problems, and they allowed Pacula to take the project elsewhere. And this is where Warner Brothers enters the picture, right? Coralco's f- financial problems, they escalated to the point where they actually filed for bankruptcy in late 1995 after Cutthroat Island and Showgirls were both m- massive box office bombs. Cutthroat Infamous. Island alone lost them $100 million. A uh, fun fact for all you listeners, Cutthroat Island is the reason you didn't see another pirate film in Hollywood until Pirates of the Caribbean. You still haven't really either. Pirates of the Caribbean right. is the, really the only one. <laughs> have you ever seen it? I haven't. Yes. Yes, I have. It's not very good. I, I Well, it's on our list. I'll have to watch it eventually. I've seen, I've seen Showgirls, and actually I like it a lot more than, I guess, like what it, it's critical reception. Yeah. 
also on our list. Both of those films will be covered at some point. Back to the Pelican Brief. It was initially agreed that Grisham would write the first draft of the screenplay. But after about a month, he called Pacula, Pacula, whatever the heck his name is. I'm just going to say Pacula from now on. Sorry, Alan. And he said, Grisham said that he didn't want to do it and he left it in the filmmaker's hand. It's interesting because so Grisham had nothing to do with the production of The Firm, which was released earlier that year. Right. But he actively lobbied for Julia Roberts to play the part of Darby Shaw. He, He seemed to have written the character with her in mind. Which is pretty cool. I always like seeing that examples of when an, when yeah. an author wants a particular actor to play a character they wrote. It's always nice to see that payoff. Also, just an interesting note. Usually, you can look at what was what was a downfall for a film. Was it too much studio interference? Well, in this particular case, Grisham didn't even write the screenplay for the firm, so still kind of in the film's hands of like how they're going to be able to get a screenplay that'll make that'll work right yeah julia roberts so she spent time at tulane law school to prepare for her role several of the students that are seen during the classroom scenes are actually tulane law students now to research his role as reporter greg grantham denzel washington spent time with washington post's reporters this film was shot on location in new orleans including tulane's campus as well as washington dc and production lasted from May to November 1993. And of course, this was released for Christmas. Darby Shaw and Gray Grantham, in the book, they become lovers at the end. Now, although Julia Roberts was interested in bringing that to the screen, Denzel disagreed, he feel, he feeling that audiences did not want to see an interracial romance. But that just shows how much times have changed, right? Even from back then, like that, this would not even be an issue now, I would imagine. Funny enough, watching the Pelican Brief for the rewatch, I thought... I don't I was confused as why there wasn't uh, any romantic connection. I was like, this seems like it would be a slam dunk romantic tie in. But you're kind of rooting for them. Yeah, yeah you, you really are, especially yeah. they have great she's chemistry. going she's going through the loss of like, you know, her prof- her teacher slash lover. And he's there to provide support, not only and to console her through that, but also just through this whole ordeal. It, it would make sense that they'd get together. And the book actually does a pretty good job of establishing that through the entire story. Back to the film. So the fictional character of um, FBI director F. Denton Voiles, he appears in several of Grisham's books, which involve the FBI. He is also in the firm, but he's played by a different actor. The, the, uh, the, the head DA from yep. original Law & Order, that's the guy. Famous DA guy. Yeah. Don't know his name. Again, probably should have written that one down, but whatever. Scenes were filmed of Gavin Verheek. That's a John Hurd, a- <laughs> a.k.a. Kevin McAllister's dad. So scenes were filmed of his character in Washington showing his colleagues the actual Pelican brief. But these scenes were cut from the film. But a brief glimpse of them is seen in the theatrical trailer. The climactic scene involving the car bomb and subsequent chase of Darby and Gray Grantham was created specifically for the movie. It does not exist in the novel. And something that popped up during the research, almost every scene has something blue in it, especially the color turquoise slash teal. From Denzel's suit to a pen that Darby uses, there's teal everywhere. Walls, colors, calendars, and clothing of people walking by in the background. Even the furniture in some scenes was teal. And after I read that, I actually went back and watched the film, and it's true. It's not just some internet rumor. And what does it, uh, and what does it all represent? I have no idea. Maybe they where just liked Pel- it. Where do pelicans sit? In the water? In water. In water. 
But water's not teal. Yeah, whatever. Not when there's oil in it. <laughs> okay, we uh, we'll we'll re- we'll revisit it. Yeah. Um, question: climactic car bomb scene. Do you think there were too many car bombs in this movie? Um, I think I think one is enough. I think one is enough. I did enjoy the um, the comical way in which the the guy who plants the car bomb just crashes into the car and explodes. <laughs> like, dude, just hit the brakes, man! Just hit the brakes. Also, I have a question about that before I forget. So, if the car bomb is rigged to go off when the car starts, how would him just crashing into the car set it off? It's Hollywood logic. This is it's true. The same, yeah, it's the same way. We're always curious why uh, people use car doors to defend themselves from uh shootings that yes. shouldn't work <laughs> it's the same logic of like um when you shoot the gas tank of a car it's not going to it's, explode it's not gonna explode no. but it is cool to watch on screen i guess yes it uh, is wrapping up the production history uh shortly before the film's christmas release a private screening was held at the white house by then president bill clinton and the first lady pakula and grisham both attended that's kind of, i thought that was kind of cool that is kind of cool, but I'm yeah. also just like, I, I laughed to myself because I'm like, funny, a president embroiled in a scandal in the Pelican Brief, and we all know how Clinton's career ended up. Yeah. Different, different kind of reasons. conspiracy, though. Different different reasons. Yeah, I would say a much more realistic conspiracy. Well, what was, was yes. the Clinton thing even a conspiracy? Eh. Not a conspiracy. Mm. They tried to make it I, into one. They tried to make it into one, that's for sure. Yeah. And they've tried to make everything about the Clintons a conspiracy, that's for sure. Uh, I think yeah. it's probably just a bit more uh, Capitol Hill hijinks. How about we'll call it that? Yeah, we'll leave that alone. Let's talk about why this wasn't better. I would like to start with the plot. Mm-hmm. The plot of this movie is ridiculous. Mm. Um, anything you want to say? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's... It's a head scratcher. Yeah. I think one of the biggest questions I had in my mind was just like the way that they take out the Supreme Justices in the beginning of the film. It they, seemed like they being to Kamel Stanley Tucci, super assassin <laughs> Kamel, played by amazing character actor Stanley Tucci in an early role. It did not seem subtle. No, there's really nothing subtle about shooting someone in the head and then um strangling someone in a, a porno theater <laughs> yeah um i have some thoughts about this first of all one thing i noticed have you ever seen another movie that involved the supreme court i don't think i have not directly no i think that makes it kind of cool i think the concept is cool of just like how do you write about the supreme court and then just how much influence they have on just how much influence they have on legislation in general. And then you know that like they're appointed for life. I mean, that's also, that's already like very relevant to today and how people are looking at uh, how they're looking at appointments. People are not just the Supreme court now, but whether the house. Um, So I think like this kind of plays into more of a, what if people are forced out of those roles kind of thing. And then how, how would that, how would that be influenced by maybe big corporations that want (laughs) certain certain decisions made in their favor but i don't know if they would necessarily order stanley tucci um to 
to strangle someone in a porno theater to get their job done. I think it would be a bit more subtle. Uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, Justice Paul Rubens. <laughs> Shouts out Paul Rubens. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. Anyway, I, I saw. Okay. So uh, Stanley Tucci's character, Kamel. Um, let's talk about the killings, the assassinations themselves. Why wouldn't he just smother the old justice with a pillow? Why shoot talk- him in the head? He's on on death's door. He, he, they establish he's very old, very old. (laughs) Oh, I, I, yeah. Okay. So this isn't, he is played by a, a, a then very old actor named Hume Cronin. He -hmm. looked comically old to me. He looked like a younger actor in like old man prosthetic makeup. Why didn't they just get an old person? He was old though. That's the thing. He was like 80 when this movie came out, but they were trying, I I don't know really bad for 80. (laughs) <laughs> not only did he look bad, he remind like he he reminded me of like a Muppet in a wheelchair. <laughs> he remind you know what he reminded me of uh, the puppet Yoda from Phantom Menace. Oh, that's a good way to put it. It just before they replaced Yoda with CGI. I'm yeah, not talking about yeah. the puppet from the original trilogy. I'm talking about the newer, crappier one. Glass looking hard eyes. to see. The dark side is. Yes. <laughs> That's what this guy reminded me of. It was some kind of weird prosthetic makeup that they had him in. But needless to say, he could have just smothered him. He shoots him in the head. He also shoots his nurse. Not subtle. Not at all. all. And then poor Paul Rubens in the theater strangles him with some kind of rope belt thing. But he strangles was, him real quick. And you hear the neps, the, the neck snap. And I don't know. I don't, yeah, I, I don't I just, think they'd. Yeah. I don't there know. was all that was also a very uncomfortable scene to watch. Just the un, the unbuckling of the pants. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean that that whole concept is just aged poorly because the internet was just a few years away. Well, to be fair, there's actually a lot in the film where you kind of go back and say, "Oh yeah, that was the '90s." Like, uh, yes, porn porn wasn't on the internet, and people still use payphones, pagers, payphones, porn theaters. So the plot itself, the whole concept of Supreme Court justices being assassinated is mental. I never thought about it like this when I was younger, but just like rewatching it, I'm like, wait a minute. Can you imagine if this happened in real life, the fallout involved? I mean, I think that's why even the concept is is a draw, like because we've talked about it today, like people are clamoring for certain members of like the House or in the Supreme Court, like people have very strong political opinion. And so that kind of draws into like, sometimes people feel extremist tendencies. So if something were to happen today, like either side, we probably see a ton of rioting. uh, Yeah. I'm going to assume the January 6th stuff and like the 2020 riots would be nothing compared to like, if, if that actually happened today, if two justices got assassinated, it would be ridiculous. And I think it's one it one of the be. weaknesses of this film is it does not do a very good job of establishing what the fallout is from these two assassinations. No. The president's no. like, oh, I guess I'll just have a press conference and uh, you want me to wear a sweater? It's like, um, this is probably a bigger deal than that. And then even then his, uh, what is it? His chief of staff just recommends like who Tony to G. put in place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> recommends Great character who to put actor. In- Oh, absolutely. Recommends just to who to put in place. It's like, won't that look fishy? Right. Like, won't that draw public ire? Like, that's going to be all over the news. There was so, people already yeah. protesting apparently everything 
There was a lot yeah, of there was exactly. a big a large variety of protester signs outside of the Supreme Court, and that was before the assassinations. But then it never revisited again how no. strongly the public is feeling after such a huge after the huge fallout of two assassinated Supreme Court justices. But that also got me thinking about something else. Remember how ridiculous the 2000 election was? Just imagine if that election happened now. That's a whole nother podcast. We don't have to get into that. But that it, it made me think. Mm-hmm. So the plot of this film, Anton, the main antagonist, this oil tycoon named Victor Matisse, right? Yes. He has two Matisse. Supremes killed with the hopes that the president will appoint new Supremes who would hypothetically rule in his favor on a legal case that is being described as being years away from even making it to the court, if at all. This is laughable. It's very heavy-handed, and I think, I mean, you, I, I personally, I haven't read the Pelican Brief. Does it feel a bit more natural than the novelization, Pat? Yes. I I did reread most of the book in in preparation for this episode, and I really enjoy the book. It it goes into a lot more detail about the inner workings of the White House and specifically this this character played by Tony G, Tony Goldwyn. Um, His character's name is Fletcher Cole. He's a far more fleshed out character in the book, which is true of any book. The characters are obviously going to get more background. Really trying to pull the strings and make sure that... uh... Yeah, yeah. He, well, he's so, a he's he's a real shady character in in the book. I, I I was curious: is the president more involved in the in the novel? Yes. What what the novel does a, a better job of, which the, the the film here kind of hints at it, but the novel goes into a lot more detail about how the chief of staff Cole is like the real power behind the throne, where the, the president yeah. is um, pretty hands off, and he he trusts him to just run things. And it goes into a lot of more detail about all the all the manipulation behind the scenes that that Cole is trying to do. Cole hates the FBI director. The FBI director hates him. And it it's just I don't know if it's more believable in the novel, but I feel like a novel lets you get away with a lot more ridiculous stuff. So what's what's funny is I think about what confused me about the plot from this film, or at least what felt like plot holes versus, you know, what you're describing to me would make more sense. How do you kind of flesh out more of character intent, characterizations? And then when you think about that characterization and how they're bringing to life, like, you know, the novel, even I read The Firm and I feel like in The Firm, it was much truer to the novel, the, the film adaptation. Yes. And I think part of it is when you have a film like The Pelican Brief, when you're so deeply rooted in conspiracy theory, I feel like you really need a better understanding of character motivations and tensions and how those different inner workings are really influencing things. So I feel like part of the reason that, you know, this plot felt a bit more, I don't know, a bit more loose or just not grounded was you didn't have enough time to really see that and really no. kind of justify more of the movement that you see. You just kind of take for granted that the chief of staff is doing things to help cover up for the president. The, I, this is something else the film doesn't do a very good job of, is the whole plot gets triggered because this guy Matisse is crazy. And in in the book, they go into it more. Like, why would he start killing all these people? All he has to do is nothing. And they do this cover-up by blowing people up with car bombs, and they they hire Kamel a bunch of different times to kill people, kill anyone who sees the Pelican Brief. 
But in one of the big plot holes, I think, is Darby Shaw. She's a, a, a second-year law student at Tulane. She's the only person who puts two and two together with hundreds of FBI agents investigating things. No one mm-hmm. else stumbles onto this because she remembers a, a PBS documentary, which, by the way, I don't think the PBS documentary part is in the, in, in the book. She was just doing straight research in the book, and she's like, well, they have this one thing in common, which is the environment, these two justices. That's why they were killed. But I have to say, at least the plot moved well. Yeah. Everything moved in a fairly linear fashion. There's some stuff that I, I think required some uh, further explanation that uh, audiences missed, which you know we'll get to in, in, in a little bit. I'd, I'd argue certain parts maybe dwelled a little bit too long, whether that was <laughs> oh, Julie yeah. Roberts in the hotel room for forever in the film. Yeah. I, I want to give the director, Pakula, credit because I think he does a good job of building tension. In a yeah. lot of the scenes, but to your point, there are things that just go on simply far, far too long. I found myself fast forwarding through scenes with Kamel, like killing the two Supremes when he kills yep. uh, Kevin McAllister's dad in the hotel room. Mm-hmm. I don't think the runtime was that long, but the way that it was shot, it's, it just seemed to go on forever. And I think that's just like a pacing preference maybe for the director trying to make a reveal a bit more heightened like for example when you're in the porno theater and stanley tucci's unbuckling his like weird like cord belt thing rope strangle belt thing yeah yeah (laughs) um i think that was on purpose right it's like what is he doing this is already a very uncomfortable scene to watch and then you're like oh he's gonna murder him i feel better now (laughs) Yeah. Like, oh, um, oh, he snapped his neck. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple but, other scenes like yeah. that too. When when um the one assassin is stalking Gray and Darby yeah. in the parking garage, and she's just like slowly walking around. But Gosh. this is and not the, a short film either. This is like two no. hours twenty minutes. So we could even think about then. One, do you take out maybe a bit more of the pacing that was a bit slower? try to replace that with more scenes trying to build out the characters more maybe that would have been in the in the film's favor i think so there's also a lot of characters in it now i i do give pakula credit for he really made an effort to include all of the characters from the novel but there's so many characters like do you remember the william atherton he played the cia director yep so he's basically in two scenes. And then at the end of the movie, when the FBI director, Voyles, when he mentions his, um, the CIA director, his name is Gaminsky, he mentions him to Darby and Gray. It's like, I don't remember who that is. He hasn't been in the movie for over an hour. Also interesting, they never say the president's name. No. It's, it's just strongly implied in the book that he's a Republican president. Hmm. Because he's, you know, he um he appointed. So in the book, I don't know if they make it clear in the film, but in the book, the president appointed the conservative justice who gets killed in the theater. That was that president's appointee. So like pretty recent. And then they of course, make that clear. Old man Muppet Yoda justice. He's been on the court since like I don't know, like like 1938. No, they didn't make that clear. And no. I almost wish I could have seen if you could have seen shots of like the public at like public one questioning being in on the conspiracy theory or just anything that really shows the I guess people feeding into it because if I've learned anything in the past few years is that people love conspiracy theories uh, they do um, 
Yeah, some I just think the movie's long. It it could have it could yeah. have benefited from just take out a couple characters, take out, I don't know, maybe twenty minutes. It, it it'll move at a crisper rate. Like even the parade scene in New Orleans, that went on forever for me. But I do want to give a big shout out to Stanley Tucci. Because yes. this is an early role for him. And I was noodling on this a bit while I was watching this. I think he's my favorite character actor. He's in a pretty awesome variety yeah. of roles. He's never given a bad performance. Whatever role he's playing, he always adds something to the film. I liked he all goes, his different disguises and accents that he does here. Yep. He's he's you what I call the ultimate contributor. He, any role that he's in, he just adds something to it. He he seems to thrive off working with other actors, no matter what the the role of the story. You you could put Stanley Tucci into any role, and I think he'd excel. Oh yeah, Tucci's the man. Got to give he really that, is. Got to give him a ton of credit. I don't want to say he's underrated because I, I I'm pretty sure any everyone would agree with this take, right? Like I've never heard anyone say anything bad about the guy. Like he just seems There's like a, so well liked. Yeah, there's a series on uh, on Max, like Stanley Tucci just goes around eating food and then like it's a fantastic series. He just seems like a really great guy. In oh yeah, the, the Italy, the Italy show. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on CNN and they dropped it and uh, Max picked it up. Yeah, good, good shout out. Um, so how his but, character yeah. dies, right? Kamel, he gets killed when he's he's impersonating mm-hmm. um, Mr. McAllister after killing him in his hotel room. He he steals his mm-hmm. identity and he's he's presumably. Or not presumably, he's definitely doing this to kill Darby Shaw, right? Right. And then he gets killed when he's at the river walk thing with her in, in New Orleans. One of the criticisms of this scene that audiences disliked is that it's not really clear how he gets killed. I only really knew what happened because of the book. So the guy that kills him, he is the same mm-hmm. guy who pretends to be a New Orleans police detective named Rupert. He's the first guy who questions Darby after the car bomb kills her lover slash professor. If you remember, she's in a car and a guy comes up to the car and knocks on the window and he says, hey, I'm Sergeant Rupert. That's him. That's the guy that kills Kamel. I need to check that out. Um, That's a good call out. Yes, but it's not clear in the movie. I only know this because I read the book. He is a CIA assassin, and he gets assigned to keep watch over Darby by the CIA director. Now, technically, Mm -hmm. FBI director Voiles tells her this at the end of the movie. But just like with the CIA director, it's been like 90 minutes since you've seen either one of these characters. So you really, it's not clear. I think it's a really valid criticism, and I'm surprised Pakula let this slip through. Interesting. Because when I was like, my wife and I were watching it, and she was like, "What happened to Stanley Tucci?" She's like, "Who, who shot him?" And I was like, "Whoa, it was the guy that it, you see him in the fountain?" And she's like, "I but don't." They don't. They don't make that clear. No, they don't. Yeah. Also, this is a one of those interesting films where you have both the CIA and the FBI involved, and I think that you know I didn't learn about like kind of clear distinctions or like uh, who has like what authority. Um, until like, you know, a couple of years ago, did a did bit more independent research. I could find that a confusing for audiences as well. I think the CIA part in this movie, it's just unnecessary. It's not. Yeah. I mean, I guess they had to do it just because of the, for the plot to work based on, you know, what they were trying to adapt from the novel. But I, it's just that whole part of it's the a, plot is just not clear. It's a lot. It's like a very like technically this is how it would work 
so they would need to be included. Right. But it just, it was a, it was confusing to follow along already with so many characters, a very big plot. Yeah. I think what saves the plot for me is how well acted everything is. Every part in this mm-hmm. movie is just, is just really well acted. Yeah. And that, for me, uh, that makes up for the silly plot mostly. Yeah, so, you know, we we talked about before, like, this film has, you know, huge leads attached. I mean, Denzel, Julia Roberts, huge. They're great here. Um, So, like, for example, the scene very early on in the film where, like, her mentor and lover dies in the car bomb. Um, Sam Shepard. The way that he acted the scene, I was kind of laughing to myself because I'm, like, uh, just a drunk guy getting blown up in a car. But her genuine, her genuine reaction was it's amazing like, acting. It, 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 it is amazing acting. So I do have to give it to both um, Julia Roberts and Denzel for just really, really helping to hold this film up. Oh, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna try to sell this movie to anyone, the way I would explain it to someone, if if you were like, "Hey, Pat, like uh, I've never seen this movie, should I watch it?" I would say. The plot is pretty ridiculous, but you get Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington at the top of their game playing off each other, both with great chemistry, and they're supported by a really strong cast. Like That's the selling point for this mm-hmm. film, to me, at least. I don't think that they ever acted in anything together ever again, so... This is like this is kind of your key opportunity to see that, too, with both of them as the leads. Wait, they, they did, didn't they? Did they? Google it. We have to Google it. Google it. Yeah. I thought they did. But I'm glad you called out her her acting, her reaction to Sam Shepard getting blown up. It it really is fantastic acting. And she plays the rest of the movie scared, paranoid, and she really sells it. Oh. Wanna know some wanna know a fun fact? Of course. This uh Pelican Brief was the year technically was the only film that had both Jelly Roberts and Denzel. But there is another film coming out. Uh, there is another film coming out. It's not The Equalizer 3, is it? No. Uh, or sorry, there was another film that was coming out that was set to include them both. Um, Leave the World Behind. It was set to have both uh, Julie Roberts and um, Denzel as the leads. I don't um, think I've ever heard of that. It's so it's supposed to really like it's it's going to be a Netflix release in December. So, you know, listeners can look out for that. But Denzel exited production. So Mahershala Ali ended up replacing him as the right. other lead. But we we were all we almost had a second film with Julie Roberts and Denzel. Well, together. I, again. I like him, too. He's another great actor. Oh, fantastic actor. Back to the Pelican brief. These two leads. I'm always interested in these types of roles for actors because they're they're overqualified for this film, but it enhances it in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the cast, you know, we've been been mentioning this before, but this is a really strong cast, and this is the selling point for the film. There's nothing Oscar worthy, but there's really no weak links here. Like John Lithgow, good supporting uh-huh. character. John Iconic. Hurd, aka Kevin McAllister's dad. Sam Shepard. We mentioned Tucci. We mentioned Tony G. Robert Culp plays the president. I didn't know his yeah. name, but I've seen him in a bunch of other stuff. James B. Sicking, who plays the FBI director. I've seen him in plenty of stuff. William Atherton, everyone's favorite asshole. He plays the CIA <laughs> director. 
And then the guy that hires Kamel is a well-known character actor. And then, of course, one of the all-time great movie scumbags, Anthony Heald, who plays Dr. Chilton from Silence of the Lambs. That's hilarious. He plays that lawyer, they call it, the Andrew, where Denzel's like, you don't have a lawsuit. And he's like, you son of a bitch, and just hangs up on him. <laughs> and then, of course, pre-sex in the city, Cynthia Nixon plays one of Darby's friends. Pretty so small. Yeah, but yeah. a lot of well-known faces. Yeah. I always like yeah. I like these types of movies just for that. Second reason why this wasn't better, Anton. The antagonist, we hear the Very... name Victor Matisse many times. We never see him, which is bizarre for a film. He's not Very seen. absent. Very absent. This is a huge weakness. Absent, and there are films that have the great big bad that doesn't get revealed until the end, but this is the film where there was a great big bad that just never got revealed, basically. I can't believe they didn't feature him in the movie. He makes a very brief appearance in the novel. He's basically only on two pages. A lot of characters in the novel talk about him, much like they do here in the film, but his appearance in the novel is very, very memorable. But this is one of the most frustrating things about this film for me. The entire story happens because Matisse goes berserk and starts killing anyone associated with the Pelican Brief. So we have this reclusive, villainous oil tycoon whose mm -hmm. decision sets off all of the film's events. He sets all of the events in motion, right? His presence casts a shadow over the whole film, but all we get is a grainy picture of him. Like, I'm sorry, but that's just not good enough. Yeah, agreed. I think a, a great film needs, a, or a, a protagonist needs a strong antagonist, and a great film has, you know, both. I feel like this film could have done way better if there was just a very strong, I guess, if you had a strong image for who Darby was supposed to be with Julia Roberts, they should have had a strong um, presence for Matisse as well. Even if it was only the one scene, it would have benefited right. this film greatly. Like, imagine if we got Return of the Jedi and we never saw the Emperor on screen. It's just like okay, or yeah, or if you if you never get, I mean, any any villain when it comes to any hero, it's it it, it doesn't have a it yeah. it's a strong imbalance basically. It's very anticlimactic, and it's the main reason why this film could never approach being great for me like you 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 just needed a face for the villain and they're almost i i think i know what pakula was trying to do i don't want to speak for him but it's almost like the conspiracy was the villain <laughs> right i see what you're saying or, but, or i mean uh, even even maybe along those same lines you could even argue the villain doesn't need a face because it represents all corporations that have strong political, I guess, like investments that they want to lobby towards. But I don't know. It makes the fact that he kills two Supreme Court justices even more ridiculous. Right. Because it's just some random, random rich head of oil tycoon. Yeah, it's... I mean, it, his absence here, it leaves us with a bunch of supporting roles that are all well acted, but it's not enough to drive this home. Like, right. they try to make Fletcher Cole, the president's chief of staff, the villain. But he's not, he's not the bad guy in the film. No. He's not. He's 
shady and a little corrupt. He's but he's ultimately control. yes. All of his actions are to protect the president, right? He's not doing it for yeah. more nefarious motivations like Matisse. He's not working for Matisse. No. Now, what the film hints at at the end is so, um, just like the book, the president doesn't run for reelection. Fletcher mm-hmm. Cole resigns. All of the lawyers and Matisse get indicted. And it, right. again, the film does not do a good job of establishing this. So Matisse is living in the Bahamas. And when he gets indicted, he goes on the run to like Egypt or something, which they re- they could have explained in the movie with like a couple of lines of dialogue, but they just, they don't. And I know you no. wanted to talk about the ending because one of the things you brought up to me before we were recording this is how disappointed you were by the ending. So, yeah, I mean, it. I think when you think of the Pelican Brief and you compare it to other Grisham works, whether The Firm, A Time to Kill, it always felt like there was a bit, from my perspective, a complete ending and a complete story arc should feel satisfying. And I felt like at the end of this film, it didn't feel satisfying. It felt like even though the characters were out of danger, you still at the same time just get a very quick ending to what was it at that point, like over two and a half, it felt like two and a half hours of trying to catch this invisible bad guy. And so with that, sure, you kind of get justice at the end, but at the same time, it felt like a very soft anticlimactic ending to what was a very, you know, at times like a very exhilarating political thriller. So my take is it could have been a much stronger film had there been a bit more retribution of some of, of the villain actually getting their comeuppance um, for a very heinous act. I almost wonder if Pakula was trying to do the same thing that he did in All the President's Men. Because if, if, you, if you think about that film, mm-hmm. you never see anybody who works at the White House. No. You never see their faces. You hear a couple voices on the phone. But just like with this film, you never actually see Halderman or Ehrlichman or John Mitchell or, or even President Nixon, right? But the difference is here, that was a real conspiracy. That really happened. The public, the audience, we, we knew who they were. We knew their faces. We have no idea who Victor Matisse is. This is fiction. So I, I think he may have been trying to apply that same method here, and that's, that's where it doesn't work. Now, that being said, if we want to wrap this up and talk about did we like it, I still think it, it's a pretty successful political thriller. It's a very well-made film. It goes on a little long. The plot is ridiculous, but I think it's generally well-filmed and it's really well-acted. I didn't hate rewatching it. I don't know if it's something that I would revisit anytime soon, but I was impressed by how well made it was. And I have to give it a lot of credit for that. Like, I like all the dialogue. I like the chemistry between the characters. It, it's not one of Denzel's best performances, but that's because he's just given so many genius performances. It's not necessarily one of Julia Roberts' best performances, but again, I really like what she's doing here. I like the two of them together. That alone makes it, I think, pretty good. <laughs> I forgot how effective James Horner's score is. The music is like eerie and beautiful at the same time. It's a very good like conspiracy type of score, and 
it does a good job of adapting Grisham's book. I have to give it credit for that. I think I want to give this a C plus. Okay. Because I, I ultimately did like watching it. I was going to give it a higher rating, but honestly, you talked me into giving it a lower rating because some of the stuff you mentioned that we incorporate into the notes, it's it's they're pretty glaring flaws. No, I think that's a very fair rating, and I think that um, you made some very strong points about what the film did right. I think it was a very like pretty film. Like I do yeah. love me films that film on location, and they really were able to capture just the conspiracy aspect very well. The director does a fantastic job with that, and you have. Denzel and Julia Roberts. What more could you ask for in very strong leads holding up this film? Right. But still at the same time, like for me, the ending left a sour taste in my mouth. While already a very long film, it felt like it didn't have the opportunity to really flesh out more of the more realistic aspects of how does the public play into just this, the, the uh, fallout of supreme supreme justice assassinations or even uh there could have been more opportunity to flesh out just the uh motivations of different characters that really draw more into the conspiracy aspect um but having said that like it was you know i didn't hate rewatching it i still had a you know pretty good time but i honestly am not going to probably look out to watch this film again anytime soon i don't know if i We'll try to make it like a yearly. Well, I should watch Pelican Brief again. But at the same time, like, who knows? I'll definitely rewatch the film with you, Pat. If you ever want to watch it, just let me know. With that, I'll give it, I'm just going to give it a solid C. That's fair. It's interesting. If you had asked me this 10 years ago, I probably would have given it a B. But mm, it's one of those yeah. movies where it's not, it just didn't hold up quite as well as I remembered. Whereas, I don't know if it's fair to compare it to the firm, but they're, they're probably always going to be compared just because they're both Grisham works. They both came out the same year. And every time I see the firm, I like it more. It's aging like wine. I think when we think about conspiracy theories or just like even strong female leads, I actually saw a lot of, or like little guy versus like the big corporation. I actually saw a lot of parallels with Aaron Brockovich in this film. And of yeah, course that star environmental stuff. Julie- all of the environmental stuff that starred Julie Roberts. And I thought that was a much better film. That was also a real story. It was also a real story. Right. Um, and I think like, I mean, of course it's not fair to compare the two, but I feel like if you kind of look at those parallels, you can, you, you can see and kind of draw like there was uh, a few things that made that film move a lot faster and also just displayed differently. Check out presumed innocent. That's a much better Pakula. Right, quote will, unquote will, legal thriller. That's actually a real uh, legal thriller. I will check that out. A lot of courtroom Zoomed stuff. Innocent. You want to see Prime Harrison Ford and Raul Julia? Shout out to Raul Julia doing their thing. Legend. Great movie. For all listeners, that is a famous actor, also known for uh, Gomez Adams and Bison in the Street Fighter film. That's right. Yeah. 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 His career ended way too soon. Mm-hmm. Tragic. Yeah. Well, I don't know if we have anything else to say about the Pelican Brief. No, just uh, it made New Orleans seem a lot. I don't know. It, it had a different vibe for a film that depicts New Orleans. Is that is that fair? Yeah. 
there was a very different vibe than most like New Orleans filmed. Um, I, I would say scenes. it's the second best New Orleans conspiracy movie. The first being JFK by a mile. Fair. Yeah. It'd be cool to talk about conspiracy theories again, just because I'm fascinated by them, especially when they end up being true. Right. Well, thankfully, this one isn't. It'd be pretty scary for now. Na- for now. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's hope this never happens. Yeah, um, I I hope this never happens. Um, let's wrap this up because I am starting to ramble. Yeah, let's. Yeah, that was yeah. a fun classic Pat and Anton episode. Yeah, that's it for the this week's edition of Why Wasn't It Better. Uh, next week, it may be Hannibal. It may be something else. Again, we apologize as we are starting to record these out of order. But enjoy it, whatever it is. Yeah, enjoy. Thank you again, listeners. And uh if you have any film suggestions, want us to answer any particular questions or just have any feedback at all, you know where to reach us. We appreciate you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.